Through Alpern, the team on brass, and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance. His weekly Monday appearance. It is the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And what follows Dave Cameron, as he does every week, analyzes all baseball. As I note, this edition of Fangraphs Audio was recorded on a Monday, Monday the 28th of July, precisely, to be precise. And the trade deadline is the 31st, Thursday the 31st of July. Much of the content at Fangraphs.com has concerned this trade deadline in one way or another. And in fact, much of what follows concerns that same trade deadline in one way or another. Trade deadline. Say that once fast. Rumors abound between uh, the Dodgers and the Red Sox. Will they make a trade? How valuable is a relief pitcher or how much more valuable is a relief pitcher at the trade deadline in terms of trade value uh, than he is at the beginning of the season? Those are some questions I asked Dave Cameron. He supplies the answers. He also supplies this comment of a mysterious and troubling nature. And then the Mariners are like, well, we're going to kidnap you. It is Fangraphs Audio. It does feature Dave Cameron. And it begins right now. Oh, yeah, there you go. Yeah. You sound good. Where are you right now? I am on my back deck because North Carolina has decided to actually uh, have a nice day. Oh, great. Yeah, we don't have many of those in the summer. Do you feel into your, Do you find that your your uh, experience of the world is altered by the weather? Absolutely. Yeah. Some, yeah. People, some people maybe not as much, but uh, I know for me too, when it's a nice day out, my uh, perception of the world has totally changed. Yeah, I have, like, uh, the last couple of months, I have found myself being, like, more grumpy than usual, and, you know, all the people who think I'm, like, permanently grumpy can, you know, feel free to take pot shots, but yeah. I've found myself to be slightly more grumpy than usual, because we've had a terrible summer in North Carolina. It's, like, 95 or thunderstorming, with no in-between, uh, and so to have, like, a 75-degree day with, like, moderate humidity, uh, I'm in a good mood. Yeah, so get out there and celebrate it. Yeah, I, I am out there. I don't know if I'm celebrating, but I'm out here. Yeah. Hey, listen, <clears throat> uh, with regard to your work output, um, it, it, let's see. La- when we spoke last week, you had just finished the trade value series. Correct. Um, and then I, I guess in, in a somewhat related development, hey, now that I think of it, your trade value series, uh, you produced that shortly before the trade deadline. Is that by design? <laughs> it's, it's amazing how that works. Yeah. Uh, yes, that's absolutely by design. It, uh, it's basically twofold. There's nothing going on during the All-Star break, so it gives us content and gives people something to read when there's no baseball for four days. And also, this is the time of year when people care about players' trade value. Right. And uh, it makes sense, of course, because the, the trade deadline is, well, I don't know if I say it's upon Thursday. us. It's nearly, yeah, nearly upon us. Right, it will happen yeah. in a couple of days. Uh, here's uh, one thing I was looking at, just some of the deals that have been conducted so far uh the the most i guess sort of major players to move uh this is probably a partial list because i'm not good at my job but uh jeff samarja yeah and jason hamill in the same deal that was pretty right. a pretty big deal uh, jake, the biggest deal the biggest deal uh jake yeah. pv recently moved from the red sox to uh, the giants and jake pv was not having a great season but it, it still has the air of a bigger deal, I guess, because of what PV's recent history or PV's history as a pitcher. Yeah, I mean, I think PV projects as like an average pitcher, and you know, a lot of average pitchers with expiring contracts move this time of year. 
the fact that it's the second most notable deal says more about the lack of activity than about Jake Peavy. Right. And then, uh, and then I think the, the Brandon McCarthy deal also, um, I mean, it's, you know, I mean, he was still, even if his, um, uh, he was not preventing runs at an excellent rate, he was doing everything else that would make you suggest that he could prevent runs at that rate. Yeah, and I think you could throw Chase Headley in that group as well. The Yankees have basically acquired two guys who had some upside based on past track record and maybe underlying peripherals, maybe, uh, with Headley. I mean, his, his power's gone away, but Tony Blangino had an interesting piece on him uh, last week saying, you know, like there's some reason for optimism going forward. Uh, so I think, you know, the Yankees basically dumpster dived twice and made, like, a pretty smart low-cost maneuvers to uh, take some risks on some guys. Uh, and then the Giants basically picked up your your grizzled back-of-the-rotation uh, number four playoff starter type, and the A's have made the only impactful trade so far. Right. Well, uh, so two questions. One, because I, I named those three pitchers. Now, you threw Chase Headley there, so um, that's something to consider from an offensive point of view. I guess you could say the same about Kendris Morales. We could uh, approach that momentarily. Um, is it the case, though, that generally – are there are there typically more uh, – big moves for pitchers at the trade deadline than there are hitters? Or, you know, is it sort of anomalous, like for this year, for example, that the biggest deal and the second biggest deal are of the are, are, have been made to acquire pitchers? No, I think pitchers are almost always the biggest deals. Not always, but I think the, the general philosophy is that you move pitchers in the summer, you move hitters in the winter. Uh, you know, there's exceptions to the rules. If you had an expiring hitter or expiring contract as a position player who you weren't going to resign, you'd probably trade him. Uh, you know, Matt Holiday a couple years ago. Uh, there are guys who get moved, but pitchers are much more common. I think because there are more teams who are hesitant to sign pitchers to really long-term deals. So, with the, like the star position players or really good young position players, or you know, not even young position players, teams are willing to give them four, five, six, seven-year deals at market price contracts, even if they're not big revenue cities. Uh, you know, like the Rays uh, have kept Devin Longoria, and the Reds have kept Joey Votto, and uh, the Twins kept Joe Maurer, and you know, they're willing to break the bank for their kind of star players. These teams are not willing to make the same risks on pitchers. Uh, you know, the Rays love David Price, but they're not going to extend him, and they're not even going to think about extending him. Uh, they're going to trade him at some point. The question is now or or this winter. Uh, so I think we see more pitchers hit the market because there are fewer pitchers getting assigned to these kind of like stay with the franchise for your entire career type deals. Uh, so there are just more pitchers on the market to begin with. And then I would also assume just the way that injuries work, there's probably more need for pitchers as well. Is that right? Yeah, and I think, you know, especially with the way the postseason works, I wrote a post last week about, uh, you know, the Joe Kim Soria trade. Uh, and how reliever usage goes way up in the postseason. The same is true of starting pitchers. They're, during the season or during the offseason, you'd look at it and say, okay, the starter's going to throw 180, maybe 200 innings. That's going to be, you know, maybe 14, 13% of my team's total innings uh, in the entire season. And then you look at it in the postseason with frequent days off and only needing three or four starters and being able to kind of leverage your starters and maybe even pitch them on short rest if you want to do that in a game seven or something. You could have a starting pitcher throw 30% of your team's innings in the postseason. Uh, so the, the the front line starters take on a, a much larger role in October, and once you get into July and you're more sure that you're going to be in the playoffs, you can look at it and say, okay, this particular player is going to be of more import to us over the next few months than we could have projected he would have been for us back in October when we didn't want to, you know, uh, give him a twenty million dollar contract. But now that we have more information, we're willing to pay a higher price because of where we are in the playoff odds curve. 
Right, and then in so yes, there's more of a chance of making the playoffs, and I suppose less of a chance of the pitcher getting injured if he hasn't been already. Right. Yep. You you uh, reduce your risks. You get more information, which I think is key. I mean, you know, like over the winter, you know, we were talking about. Uh, you know, the kind of big five upcoming free agents and you would, you know, have Scherzer and Lester. But you also had Justin Masterson and James Shields in there. They have not pitched nearly as well as Scherzer and Lester. And, and the Indians are maybe going to give Justin Masterson away if someone will give them something for him this week. Uh, even though he's on the disabled list and won't come off till Friday, so it might have to be an August trade. But, uh, I think you can look at, you know, kind of the divergence in, in risk and pitchers and say, okay, we know a lot more about Justin Masterson than we did four months ago and teams can, uh, adjust their valuations accordingly. Right. But, I mean, so in the case of James Shields, even if he hasn't pitched as well, it's also the case that he's still pitching, which makes him worth more than zero. Uh, yes, but <laughs> he's not. He's worth zero in the trade market because the Royals won't trade him because they're the Royals. Oh, yeah. Uh, they can get uh, frustrating. Uh, they can get frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you're a Royals fan. If you're not a Royals fan, they can be amusing. Yeah. Now, uh, you, you mentioned this sort of the changing value of a frontline starter or a relief pitcher. You, do, you, you invoked that article you wrote last week about Joe Soria, and um, that was an instructive piece insofar as um, you made the point. I, I, it's a point you've made before, but you made it in a uh, in, in a particularly you made it especially essentially with upgraded data, updated data um, with with regard to. Uh, relief usage during the playoffs. So, for example, yeah. you look at the case of Koji Uehara, who, mm-hmm. who, who didn't even pitch 75 innings last year, which would have been okay. about 5% of, of his team's total innings. However, during the playoffs, he pitched almost 10% of the Red Sox total innings. Right. So here's the thing is that, uh, generally relievers, I mean, some teams will pay for them. Some, and we saw this past offseason, some smart teams paid for relievers, the A's and the Rays. Uh, but uh, it, does the re, does the value of a relief pitcher of one who's had in particular a good season does that increase because the teams that are selling understand the import of those uh, high leverage type relievers to the teams that are buying? Yeah, so I think there's uh, kind of a number of factors for why relievers are so expensive in July. Uh, one is they're more important in the postseason. So the, when you're looking at it, if you're buying in July 31st, you're saying, okay, I have information that will allow me to think that I'm probably going to play in the playoffs or have some high likelihood of playing in the playoffs. So I can now uh, project a higher number of expected playoff innings for this reliever that I'm acquiring. And, you know, every, every inning in October is high leverage, but, you know, especially late inning, close games, you can really rack up the value of the low number of innings pitched in a really tight, high leverage, you know, say it's a 2.5 leverage index in the postseason, that's probably equivalent to a, you know, 15 leverage in the regular season or something. It is, uh, you know, one of the, the highest leverage points of the season is, uh, you know, 7th, 8th, ninth inning of a postseason game. Um, and then I think, you know, there's also just a, a scarcity fact is teams churn through relievers. And so the bullpen you count on the first four months of the season, probably not the bullpen you're going to have in the playoffs. Guys get injured, guys wear down. Uh, you almost need like a second relief core for the second half of the year. And you have guys who, you know, kind of pop up during the season and become, you know, better relievers than you thought they were at the beginning of the season. So you say, okay, I have new information about this guy. Maybe his team hasn't worked him as hard as I've worked my guys. Uh, I have a need. They are willing to sell. Teams generally aren't going to consider relievers to be core pieces. Like if you're looking for the future and saying, 
I think I can contend in a couple of years. I'm not a winner right now. You're probably not going to trade your franchise third baseman or your number one starter, but you'll move your you know middle reliever, 35 year old closer. Right. And so, what does that mean? Because you wrote a piece today with regard to a potential deal between the Dodgers and Red Sox. Those two teams have been linked, I think, for like a couple different iterations of trades. Obviously, the Red Sox have John Lester. They also have some pieces at the the back end of the bullpen that might be relevant to the Dodgers too. You endorse trading for those pieces, in this case, Uehara and Andrew Miller, as opposed to a bigger name frontline starter like John Lester or if it were traded with the Rays, David Price. Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at the kind of the, the Dodgers team as a whole, and, you know, I kind of go through the numbers in the post, if you're replacing Josh Beckett, uh, with John Lester or David Price for one start, you're, you're maybe going to increase your odds like five or six or seven percent for that one game. If you replace Brian Wilson and Chris Perez with Koji Uehara and, uh, Andrew Miller, you might replace, increase your odds of winning 1% every game, all postseason long. Uh, you know, the overall effect of acquiring those two might be even higher or very close. I, I, can't, I think uh, it, it would be difficult to do because you'd have to chain everything and figure out where the innings are going to go. But the, the effects are going to be similar-ish mm-hmm. uh, to acquiring those two. And I don't think there's any question that a Uahara Miller package would cost you less than Price or Lester. I mean, I think you're, you're basically saying, I'm going to get maybe 90 to 100% of the, the value uh, for 50% of the cost. And I think if you're if you're the Dodgers and you're looking at it and saying, how do I improve my team and give my cha- team the best chance to win the World Series, uh, you shouldn't necessarily have a big preference for Price or Lester versus Uehara or Miller, and the costs of the relievers are definitely going to be too lower. Uh, just for the benefit of for, – for my benefit, if no one else's, can you summarize what exactly has been – Rumored uh, with regard to the Dodgers and Red Sox, and what what we're thinking is most probable to happen, if if anything. Well, well so I think the the tough thing is uh, the Red Sox haven't been necessarily listening or selling John Lester for that long, so we don't have this like long track record of reliable rumors from guys like Ken Rosenthal. What we have is like towards the end of last week, the Lester came out and said, uh, "If the Red Sox trade me." I will not hold that against them, and I will still consider re-signing with them in the offseason. Their prior stance had been, we don't want to trade Lester because we want to continue to try and re-sign him this winter. Uh, and usually if you trade a player at midseason, it means you're not going to try and re-sign him. Or you, the player is going to be offended that you traded him and say, like, clearly you didn't want me or you wouldn't have traded me away. Once Lester kind of gave them the AOK to trade him and said, I'll still talk to you in October, it opened up a door for the Red Sox to say, okay, well, maybe we can get some prospects and still re-sign him at the end of the year, and then that's win-win. Uh, so there's, you know, like four or five days worth of rumors. Most of them don't make any sense. I think, and I think, so there, I'm going to try not to bash the media too much because I, I don't like being a media critic, but there are a decent amount of baseball writers out there who still think Matt Kemp is good. And they know his name and he won the, or he should have won the MVP a couple years ago. He's been a, you know, a fantastic player or was a fantastic player. They forget that he is no longer that player and ignore the fact that he's due $110 million or something like that over the next six years, and he has negative trade value. So you have things floated like, oh, yeah, there's a possibility that Matt Kemp for John Lester could be could be a deal. Yeah, if the Red Sox start smoking heroin, that could right. be a deal. But that's not going to happen. So I think the, the, the reality is the Dodgers are probably interested in trading for John Lester, and the Dodgers are probably interested in trading away Matt Kemp. 
But that does not mean that those two things are going to happen in the same deal or that it's a fair trade. So, yeah, uh, yes, the Red Sox could probably acquire Matt Kemp in a John Lester trade if there was also Corey Seager and Jock Peterson in the deal and $50 million or something along those lines. Now, the Dodgers wouldn't do that. Uh, but that's the kind of deal that it would take to get the Red Sox to take Matt Kemp. Uh, so, you know, what the Dodgers and Red Sox are actually going to do, we don't know. Uh, we're pretty sure the Dodgers want to acquire a pitcher, and when they want to sell an outfielder, I don't think they're going to be able to do both in the same deal. Hmm. Now, if the Red Sox were to use heroin, are you saying, like, is that the entire – everyone associated with the club, or would that be just the front office, or does it include the players, or maybe just Ben Charrington? I think uh, probably everyone in the front office uh, has to smoke all of the heroin in all of Boston. Okay, like, they yeah. have to round it all up. You have a really effective war on crime, and then smoke it all. Yeah. Do you smoke heroin? I don't actually know. No, I don't. Uh, I think you could smoke it in the form of opium. Okay. And then well, so, so that would be the opium. You could be an opium smoker, or you could be you could shoot you shoot up maybe you shoot up heroin. Okay, right. So I think there should be a lot of shooting up going on in Boston. Yeah. Uh, if if it's going to lead or that's what it in would order take. in in order for Kemp uh, to be traded for John Lester. Uh, a lot of shooting up would have to be involved. That's a that's a hot take, a hot factual yeah. take from Dave that's Cameron. Right. Right yeah. Feel free to quote me on that, newspaper guys. <laughs> the the um, oh man, the Seattle Mariners coveted initially Kendris Morales. This is a couple years ago. Not not initially. They have never stopped. Well, at one point they began coveting him, and then they acquired okay. him. Yeah. And then this past off season there was. Uh, they they offered him the what the qualifying uh, they made him a qualifying offer. Uh, right. Morales did not accept it and then was not able to sign until after the draft. <laughs> that this is how deeply he felt about not signing with the Mariners. Yeah. And then the Mariners have gone out and traded for Kendris Morales. Yeah, the Mariners always wanted Kendris Morales back, right. and I think they thought they were always going to get him back, or they thought there was a pretty good possibility that, you know, they kind of read the market like everyone else did and said, you know, an aging designated hitter is not actually that good of a hitter is not going to get five years and $60 million, whatever Scott Boris convinced him he was worth. And they thought, you know, eventually he'll come back to us. And eventually Kendris Morales decided, screw those guys, I would rather go play with the Twins. Uh, and then the Mariners were like, well, we're going to kidnap you. Uh, because the Twins are not good and want to get rid of you now. So the Mariners traded for Kendris Morales against his will <laughs> about three weeks after he went back to Seattle, got lustily booed by the home fans, and said, I just didn't want to come play here anymore. Right, and now he's there, though. And now he's there starting designated hitter again. And what, he's taking Corey Hart's spot, is that right? Kind of. So Corey Hart's still on the roster. Um, so Hart is going to not DH as much as he was and will play more first base and actually played right field the other day, uh, which I think if you're going to make an argument for acquiring Kendris Morales, uh, the, uh, the, the way you would do it is, hey, we're replacing Andy Chavez, because Andy Chavez doesn't belong in the major leagues and has been hitting leadoff for the Mariners for the better part of three months. Uh, you can say, like, pretty much anyone you could acquire would be an upgrade over Andy Chavez, uh, the problem is Corey Hart probably not a major league outfielder on a regular basis. So uh, in concept, uh, good to require Kendris Morales to replace Kendris or to replace Andy Chavez. In practice, that's not how it's going to work. This is a team, if I'm not mistaken, uh, and certainly the, the Fangraphs odds show it. This is a team that has uh, something like a reasonable chance of making the playoffs. Uh, Points, it's, it's, I think. Yeah, it's a. Uh, 
Right. Twenty percent of making the wild card game ultimately, right? Yeah. Uh, so not a great chance. And of course, the A's and the Angels are both pretty good. Yeah. Um, so it's going to be difficult. But uh, and they they make uh, they continue to make some curious choices. Well, I think uh, the easiest way to explain the choices they're making is that their offense is terrible, mm-hmm. and their the question they're asking is not how do we make the team better, it's how do we fix the offense. So in that scenario. You're not looking at it and looking at it from a defensive perspective saying, oh, James Jones is a below replacement level center fielder. We should go find a better center fielder. Or, oh, my God, we're starting Andy Chavez in right field. What have we done with our lives? Mm-hmm. Uh, they're looking at it and saying, we don't hit enough home runs. We need more offense. We need to score more runs. Who are the best hitters available? And Kendris Morales is one of the best hitters on the market. That says something about the hitters on the market, but it's true. Kendris Morales was one of the best available hitters to acquire, and this is why the Mariners have spent the last couple of years acquiring nothing but first baseman and designated hitters, because their question they're asking is, how do we improve the offense, not how do we improve our team? Our team. Now, here's here's another thing. I think I, I asked uh, Jeff Sullivan about this at some point, and, uh, but I don't know if I've ever posed that question to you. Uh, it's this, the, the, the Mariners have had a number of players, um, and I, I suppose Dustin Ackley could be one, certainly Nick Franklin and Brad, Brad Miller are a pair of them, and then after them are perhaps uh, Ty Kelly and, and uh, Chris Taylor, we'll get to those two in a second, but a number of players of a similar sort who are just uh, um, younger players who demonstrate a, a nice base of skills, including plate discipline, including some sort of uh, defensive skill, if not necessarily as a uh, starting shortstop, you know, because there's questions about, you know, Nick Franklin uh, playing that position. There was questions about Dustin Ackley, maybe uh, his his defense, but having some defensive skill. And they these guys have, they demonstrate excellent uh, play discipline numbers in the minor leagues, but they seem to to fail, if not at first, then at least later on, uh, at the major leagues, what, is this is this somehow systemic within the Mariners organization, or is it just what happens to prospects sometimes? I think you and I had this conversation like two months ago on the podcast. Oh, did we? I feel, well, I, I, bring like, it up. I feel like this is like a repeat of like something from May. Or something. Well, okay, let's revisit it. Be, how about all right, fine. We'll say that that's one thing we discussed because I know okay. I, I know I talked about it with Solvent too. I'm constantly curious about it because I always look and I see Chris Taylor and in particular, and I also see Ty Kelly. Right, Ty Kelly can play some third base, has played second. Um, I think the the Mariners have also or Tacoma has played the outfield corners a little bit. Um, he could play a number of different positions, and he looks like he'd be good. But I always think when I see him, would he actually be good if he were promoted to the Mariners? And yeah. and I think that, in part because of his own talents, but a lot of it is because of this the the dreaded promotion to the parent club. So I think there's probably a few things going on here, and it's basically impossible to give a concrete answer as to what this is the thing. Like we can't pinpoint it and say this is the reason that these guys haven't succeeded. I think. Uh, if you were to name a few factors, uh, one would be that this type of player is probably generally overrated by major league equivalencies. So their minor league numbers are not going to translate as well to the major league level uh, because a decent amount of their value is based on drawing walks in the minor leagues. And if you don't hit for a lot of power, pitchers aren't really scared of you, and they're going to throw you strikes. So uh, we've had this conversation before, but yeah, you know, yeah. Dustin Ackley doesn't drive the ball. Nick Franklin has some power, but he's not a you know he's like a five nine hundred and seventy pound middle infielder. Even if he occasionally like turns on a fastball, pitchers aren't going to be super scared of him. Uh, Ty Kelly and 
and Chris Taylor don't have much power. Uh, I think of the guys who have succeeded out of this kind of skill set in Seattle, the only one is Kyle Seeger, who actually has home run power, who pulls the ball down the right field line at Safeco, uh, is a left-handed hitter with pull power, which is the perfect way to hit home runs in that ballpark. So I think... Uh, the differentiator for the guys who, the guy who has succeeded and the ones who have failed has generally been power. If you hit for power, pitchers will not throw the ball down the middle and exploit your weaknesses. Um, I also think there's a development problem in Seattle that does, uh, probably even predates the Zarensic era and goes back to the Bavese era and maybe even the Gillick era of, uh, this is not a team that has done a, a good job of, uh, teaching players how to hit. And they, this goes back to Jose Lopez and, uh, you know, as Drupal Cabrera and Shin Su Chu and guys in their system have been highly rated offensive prospects who've gotten to the high minors or to Seattle and have fallen on their face consistently for a long period of time. And I think the failure rate in Seattle for these kinds of players uh, has been higher than it has been in other organizations. And we've seen these guys go to other organizations and succeed uh, is because I think there's, uh, you know, a likely a, a kind of approach problem in how the Mariners teach guys to hit. Right. And that, is that something – it seems like something generally which may be hard to weed out of your system, right? Because it's a it, – I mean a system, especially if you're talking about minor league development, there, there are a lot of personalities there. And if and if one method of teaching or if it's sort of a, just a, um, a general environment has been cultivated, it might be difficult to uh, to remove that environment. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the organizations who do a best, the best job of developing talent kind of have, like, you know, not to use the cliche of, like, the cardinal way, but they have a method, and they have types of players they go for, and those players fit into what they're trying to do, and it's kind of like the Duke basketball method, right? Like, uh, Mike Krzyzewski doesn't recruit the best athletes in the world. He recruits every six foot two white guy who can shoot and play a zone defense. And he, he knows what kinds of players uh, work in the system that he plays. And he goes and recruits those guys and teaches them how to play a system and they win. Uh, and I think, you know, the Cardinals and the Rays and some of these teams that have done a good job of developing talent over the years uh, have their kinds of players. And uh, the Braves certainly fed into this mix as well. They like guys from Georgia, uh, but they have a kind of a mold and this is the kind of guy we like. And this is what we look for. Uh, I think under the current regime, the guy the Mariners really like is a guy who sells out for power at all costs and swings for fences. They love uh, guys who strike out 35% of the time and run a 200 ISO and have no other skills. And uh, when you have guys who don't necessarily fit that mold and they're in a system of guy kind of run by people who love home runs and don't care about if you strike out, it's not a great place to learn how to be a high contact gap power hitter. Right. They they, they have a player. Um, they should they should get Michael Morse. Have they ever have they ever had <laughs> Michael Morse before? They they were in love with Michael Morse until they watched him play and were like, oh, yeah, yeah he's not good. Yeah. Actually, I think uh, it's too bad that Joey Gallo is in the Rangers system because I think Joey Gallo is everything that the Mariners regime likes in a player. Like forty percent right. strikeout rate. 600 foot home runs. Uh, this is their guy. Yeah. Well, home runs are good to be able to hit. I mean, that's yeah. Not, yeah. No, I mean, they're not wrong in the fact that home runs are valuable. They are wrong in the exclusion of all other what types of value. Yeah. Yeah. Gallo is uh, Gallo. Gallo currently does have a 42 percent strikeout rate. It looks like with Double A, uh, the Double A yeah. affiliate of the Rangers. Uh, we're close to. We're closing in on. Uh, 
on um, your uh, you having fulfilled your obligations. Let's um, let's see. Let's just touch on a couple things. I saw a, n- a notice somewhere. It might have been at MLB trade rumors, or at least they had aggregated it for my benefit. Uh, a comment that the not only were the Miami Marlins um, hesitant, definitely hesitant about trading Giancarlo Stanton, but they considered themselves buyers at the deadline. Mm-hmm. Is that a thing that I? Is that really a thing I saw, or is that like a dream? That was a tweet from a Marlins beat writer. I think uh, basically what the Marlins are saying is stop calling us about Giancarlo Stanton. That's the kind of thing you like to like scare everyone off and just be like, we don't want to talk to you about Stanton anymore. We're not trading him. They've made this clear for the last couple of years. They're not interested in trading Stanton. They want to try and resign him. Whether that's realistic or not, we don't know. Uh, maybe it is. Maybe they're going to give him $200 million this winter and he just won't be able to turn it down. Uh, but they're not interested in taking those phone calls. So you put that out to the press and say, you know, stop calling. They might, you know, Steve Ciszek, I think, is probably the guy on that roster that if you'd say, this is the guy they should trade. You know, he's a good closer. He's cheap. Um, you know, he's under team control for a couple more years. You can get a good prospect for him, and he's a reliever. And, this, you know, as we just mentioned, relievers aren't the kind of guys you can build around. They should trade Steve Ciszek. Steve Ciszek. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think they're going to. I think that the Marlins don't want to kind of be known for the fire as the fire sale franchise, even though they have had several of them. And my guess is they're probably not going to do much this week. Okay. All right. Well, that's them. And uh, just, a, I guess, just a brief note. It, well, it's difficult to, to plumb in depth, but uh, is the, the question of uh, uh, Johnny Peralta. You, you wrote about him last week. Uh, this is not a trade deadline curiosity. This is This is merely just a sort of, uh, a question about uh, Joey, Johnny Peralta's defense insofar as he's good. He appears to be good at it. and the, But he, well, he doesn't look great at it necessarily when you see him, but then uh, the numbers sh- show that he is. And it creates some difficulty, I think, for for some people in being able to uh, um, accept the legitimacy of defensive metrics. Yeah, I mean, I think Peralta, the, the point of the post was basically not even so much about Peralta as much as is how much stock are we willing to put in our own eye test. Because I think a lot of people, uh, their litmus test for a new metric or a metric they're not familiar with is, um, does it agree with my preconceived notions of what I believe is true? And if it doesn't, they reject it. I, I think you see this a pretty decent amount, especially on Twitter, uh, where people who may not be regular fan graphs readers are like, you know, uh, Josh Donaldson has a higher war than Miguel Cabrera. War is stupid. And they're like, you know, their instant reaction is that if what I believe is not true, or uh, put it another way, what I believe is true, and any evidence you show me to the contrary must then be wrong. It's not a very curious place to start. <laughs> it's not. It's not the kind of position you take when you want to learn something. Uh, it's the kind of place you you start when you're an expert in the field and you are, you know. I don't know, Bill Nye the science guy or something like, you've studied this your entire life and you say, I, there's nothing more for me to learn. Uh, this is a position of absolute for me. I'm not willing to engage on the issue. If you're like a casual baseball fan and you're like, well, Johnny Peralta has thick legs and a big neck. So therefore he's bad at defense. Like maybe you should reconsider your expertise on defense and, question whether you actually know whether Johnny Peralta is a good defensive shortstop or not. I don't know that we know that he is. I think he probably is. At this point, the evidence is mounting that he's a pretty decent defensive shortstop. Uh, but I think that our 
certainty in our opinions on certain matters should be called into question, especially when the evidence mounts against us. Here's a difficult thing, though. If Johnny Peralta were a prospect right now, even yeah. like the same guy, yeah. uh, I think that it, you know, it would be easy to say that he probably didn't look like he was going to be able to stick a shortstop. I think this is one of my issues with prospect evaluators. And I think, like, some of them are very good. Jim Callis does a great job. Uh, and I think, you know, like, I have a lot of respect for guys who spend their time trying to figure out how to predict the future. It's very hard. At the same time, I think we see them fall into many of these same traps. I think Peralta is a great example of this. Or if Johnny Peralta was 22, he probably wouldn't appear on a top 100 list because he's, you know, not a prototypical slugging third baseman. Uh, they would look at the body and immediately say he can't play shortstop long term. Uh, and so they'd say, okay, well, you have an underpowered corner infielder who doesn't run and he's not a very good athlete. Uh, Johnny Peralta is, you know, maybe one of the 40 or 50 or 60 best players in baseball, position players at least. Uh, and he would be considered not one of the top 50 or 60 prospects in baseball because of his build. And I think, like, you know, athleticism is certainly important and can be very helpful. At the same time, it is probably uh, overblown when it comes to predicting a player's future when he's 18 to 22. So what do we assume that Peralta's doing that is difficult to see? I mean, is it Uh, just a question of positioning and instincts? So I think positioning is the general preconceived belief. I'm not sure I buy into this, though. Uh, I, I think... The Tigers and Cardinals, neither one of them are known to be aggressive shifting teams. The Cardinals actually, uh, I think were like 28th in shifting last year. They run pretty standard defenses. They have a pretty progressive front office, but Mike Pepini is an old school guy. And, uh, he's not out there realigning the defenses based on batter spray types or those kinds of things. I think if it was positioning, and the Tigers and Cardinals were both amazing at this, it would show up in the defensive numbers for all the other players. And we would, you know, both teams would have uh, other guys besides Johnny Peralta who were running really good defensive numbers that we thought was unusual. Miguel Cabrera posted terrible defensive numbers. Positioning didn't help him at all. Uh, we didn't see Ian Kinsler's numbers like go off the charts when he moved to Texas uh, or when he moved from Texas. I think we're, so we're not seeing evidence that uh, it's a – organizational issue with either the Tigers or the Cardinals. It could just be a Johnny Peralta positioning issue where maybe he's really good at uh, figuring out this specific hitter is going to hit the ball to this general location and he moves himself. Uh, and if he's doing it himself, it doesn't really matter if it's range or if it's initial positioning or whatever it is, he's doing something that's allowing him to get to the ball uh, and make a play that other shortstops aren't doing. I think the other thing is he's also just really good at not making mistakes. And uh, this is the thing that probably goes a little under the radar, is as statistical analysis folks have downplayed fielding percentage and errors, we basically said errors don't matter. Uh, you know, there's a, the old kind of, uh, mm-hmm. you know, if you can get to it and you make an error, that's no worse than not being able to get to it. So who cares about fielding percentage? Fielding percentage matters something. Like, it's not zero. If you make zero errors all year, that's really good. Like, if you play 160 games at shortstop and you never make an error, that's good. Good job. You get, you get an A for uh, not throwing the ball away or booting a ball or, you know, f- flubbing a double play. Even, and that will make up some for diminished range. Peralta doesn't have a ton of range, and I think even if you look at UZR, his range numbers are never off the charts. They're fine now. They're slightly above average. But the thing that makes him a good defensive shortstop, according to the defensive metrics, are the fact that he never makes an error and he turns double plays really well. And these are the kinds of things that don't show up in 
diving plays, and I think these are the kinds of things that fans don't appreciate on a daily basis. Yeah, that is uh, right. That would be yeah, well. Congratulations, Johnny Peralta. It just seems right. So the things you're mentioning, not making errors. Well, these are things that it seem to require a large sample, right? Yeah. And so if you if if you are a scout, you look at him and you say, Yeah, all right, he didn't make any errors today. Right. Right. And, or maybe you see him five times. He didn't make any errors over five times. That happens. That could be explained a lot of shortstops. Yeah, I think that, so. They're ju- scouts, especially like good professional scouts, are not judging based on whether a guy made an error. They're judging based on physical tools. So, like you know, you hear them talk about like a guy having soft hands. Peralta actually kind of fits the definition of a guy with soft hands. He makes a lot of plays that are uh, kind of you know quick transfer types or uh, moving the glo- ball from the glove to the hand and making a throw on the run, like the kinds of things that go along with. Someone you would think that, you know, an Omar Vizquel or one of those guys who's, you know, 70 pounds lighter, Peralta excels kind of at those same kinds of things. He just doesn't look like those guys. Are you suggesting that he's a big man with soft hands? Yes, that's exactly what I'm suggesting. <laughs> okay. As long as we can say that about Johnny Peralta. All right, you, you're done now. You, you did it. Thank you. Yeah. Hey, uh, yeah, well, I'll, let me say thank you, Dave Cameron. You're welcome. That has been uh, Dave Cameron. Managing Editor of Fangraphs, I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.